Well, it's good to see you today. There's a saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's been said in other ways. Shakespeare wrote, beauty is bought by the judgment of the eye. Benjamin Franklin said it in yet another way. Beauty, like supreme dominion, is supported but by opinion. Now, those such sentiments are remotely accurate. They ultimately fall short of the whole truth. It's not simply that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Instead, the perception of what is beautiful reveals the heart of the beholder. It's not just that beauty is bought by the judgment of the eye. Instead, beauty is bought by the affections of the heart through what the eye sees. Contrary to Benjamin Franklin, um, which anytime you disagree with Franklin, you must be pretty smart. Beauty is not supported by mere opinion. It's supported by our desires. Rather than having his disciples think of beauty as something based in mere opinion, Jesus teaches that what one finds beautiful or valuable indicates the state of the heart. As healthy, thriving kingdom citizens, we must be people who seek the right treasures. As with other sections in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're new with us today, we've been kind of marching through Matthew, and we're at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, and this section, just like every other section, begins with a prologue. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The main topic for the next several verses is that of treasure. Now the word treasure refers to that which we love, that which we value. Maybe it's that which we protect most dearly. It can also refer to what we think we cannot live without. Or maybe it's something that we fear to lose the most. Now, when Jesus speaks, his literal translation can be, be like this. Do not treasure your treasures on earth, but treasure your treasures in heaven. That's literally how it can be rendered. And he says that there are two types of treasure. First, there's treasure on earth, which he says is vulnerable to moth, rust, and thieves. These are treasures that corrode, crack, and crumble, and mold. They are things that can be taken away or lost. And then there's treasures in heaven, things that can't crack, crumble, or be lost. There are treasures that are eternal and that are uh, indestructible. Now, based on which treasure you pursue reveals what is, what is in your heart and what your heart wants. Where the deep-seated desires and affections that govern all of who you are, the way you think, the way you act, what a person wants and lives for, betrays what you love. What you want and live for reveals the treasure of your heart. Now, I think at this moment, all of our treasures may look somewhat different. But the reality is, is that we are all being pulled between these two treasures. Treasures in earth and treasures in heaven. It's of immense importance that we understand which of these treasures we're actually pursuing. 
For instance, we may think that our pursuit of physical comfort is nothing of great, great consequence, right? We just like our lazy boy a lot. We like our times to get to watch and veg out on Netflix a lot. But the truth is that pursuing worldly comfort above all else reveals a heart that is fixated on the world, fixated on how I feel. Our pursuits of physical pleasure, all-consuming entertainment, fame, greater wealth, self-importance, all betray what your heart really loves, no matter what your mouth says. Your mouth might say that you love Jesus, but what you actually pursue and chase after reveals whether you actually love him or not. The proof is in the action. The proof is in the pursuit. The proof is in the chase of what it is that you're going after. Now, the rest of this section, which is verses 22 all the way to 34, take us on an in-depth heart search to see what kinds of treasures we have been chasing. My friends, we must not trust ourselves. You must not be content with the thought that you think that you have been chasing the right treasures. You have to give yourself an evaluation. You have to test yourself. With every section in, the, in these passages, Jesus gives us a litmus test to see whether our hearts are storing up corrodibles, little trinkets, or whether we are storing up imperishable treasures that is Jesus himself. So I've, I'm going to give you three questions today from the uh, verses that Jesus gives us here. Question one is going to be this. How do I see things? How do I see things? How do I see stuff? Question two, who do I serve? We'll get to that here in a minute. And question three, am I anxious? And with each of these questions, we are pressed to the greater looming question. Do I really love, not just do I say I love, do I really love and treasure Jesus above all else that this world can offer? Do I really love Jesus above everything else? So the first question to ask if you are trying to discern what you really love, is to simply ask this. How do I see things? How do I see stuff of the world? Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now it's been said that the eyes are the windows to the soul right? Um, and and we, we kind of have used that in a, in a good way, but Jesus is essentially saying the, same, saying the same thing in an evaluative way. The eyes are the windows to the soul, but it's actually the lamp of the body. The eyes kind of shine the light as to how we appraise things. How your eye looks at stuff, how it appraises them, reveals whether or not you have internal light or darkness, inner wholeness or sickness, the way you value things and see the value of things, the way you prioritize stuff, the way you would price tag stuff actually reveals whether inside of you there is light or whether it's darkness. He says plainly, if the eye is healthy, then the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is bad, then the body will be full of darkness. Now, I think it's humbling to think that this one little organ on my body, kind of dictates and governs the whole organism. How I see things externally 
will have a great impact on what's true internally, on my spiritual health, on my relationship with God. My friends, I hope you're getting the point from Matthew's gospel. There's no real true division between external and internal. What you do, what you say, how you see, how you think on the outside governs what's true about you on the inside. Jesus later speaks about all these things coming from the heart of a person. And so how we see things, how my eye, how my little eye values and appraises the things around me governs the health of my whole organism. A healthy eye, in its original wording, means to have a generous or liberal eye. It could also be translated as having a single eye. He who has a single eye or he who has a generous eye. On the other hand, a bad eye is kind of an idiom in this, in this uh, time period for having a greedy or selfish eye. One commentator explains that the emphasis of this passage is on singularity or wholeness that is free from envy, free from greed, free from malice. So it's whole person generosity. I think if you read your whole Bible and you get to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 22, then you see the same truth. Whoever has a good eye. Now that's a weird way to describe that. Whoever has a good eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So put plainly, when one has a generous eye, they will view the things around them as opportunities to show generosity and love to others. When a person has a stingy eye, a bad eye, they view things of the world as stuff to accumulate. Now we see this in real time, don't we? As we're walking about our life, we see cars, we see houses, we, we see trinkets, we see valuables and collectibles, and we see workplaces, we see all these places. And the question is, do we see these things as things to be given for others' good, given for God's glory, as things that are meant to be to be taken and then redistributed back to a greater purpose of love and glory? Or do we see them as things just accumulate in my back pocket? As an opportunity to put stuff in my storehouse. Whether you see things as a means of giving or a means of getting has everything to do with what kind of treasure you are pursuing. How your eye values things has everything to do with what you think is actually treasure. How do you assess all the stuff that you have? How do you look upon your worldly collection? My friends, when we, evaluate, when we value our worldly treasures more than we value God, when we see these things as more important, more valuable, more to be cherished than Jesus himself, then the reality is we are not pursuing the right treasure. We're treasuring earthly treasures. When you look with a generous eye, when you have a good eye, when you have an eye that is liberal towards the things around you, then you are able to do exactly as Jim Elliott said, to give what you cannot keep, to gain that which you cannot lose. When you're able to see your stuff as just stuff, it can be taken, it can be gone, it can be given away, it can be lost then you're living in the true freedom to live in that which God has given you that cannot ever be lost, cannot ever be forgotten. So the first question to ask in evaluating whether or not you're actually treasuring the treasure of heaven is to simply ask yourself this, how do I see stuff? How do I see my things? The second question 
to ask in evaluating which treasure our heart is pursuing is found in verse 24. Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, I'm going to use the actual word here, mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. So after Jesus calls us to assess how we're appraising the things of the world, Jesus calls us to assess who it is that we serve. He emphatically says that a person cannot serve two lords, two masters. Jesus uses the strongest possible language to prove this is true. Either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There is no middle ground. Can I just can I can I cut out a category that America has made for Christians? There is no such thing as a faithful materialistic believer. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing to a devoted idol worshiping follower of Jesus. You either hate the one and love the other, devoted to the one, despise the other, and when it comes to treasuring God or treasuring the things of the world, it is an all or nothing devotion. So you mustn't think that just because you say that you love Jesus, that that's actually true. It has to be, am I actually fully devoted to Jesus? Or am I devoted to career, to my wants, to my dreams, to my desires, to what I hope I can accumulate over a lifetime, to my collection of junk? Or am I devoted to Jesus alone? Now, the idea of service in this passage speaks to that which we give our time, our energy, and our effort. That's what it means to serve, to give someone your time, your energy, and your effort. What are we working for? Now, the word mammon is more than just money. It can include possessions. It can include property. I think it can include anything that money can buy anything that your job can get you, anywhere your car can take you. It includes anything that this world has to offer. That's mammon. So it's not just money. You can be poor and still be materialistic. Okay, You can have a broken car and still be worshiping the things of this world. So here's a few questions to ask. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm working as a surgeon who's had the surgery myself Okay, and who has to con- continuously have the surgery myself. So When I made this list of questions that I'm about to ask you, with every question I wrote, I just could feel the tears kind of welling up in my own eye because I I know in my heart of hearts I have not fully served my God. That there are times that I have turned my own eye and my own heart away to mammon, to the stuff that I want. So let's just ask a couple questions. Am I willing to sin to get what I want? If the answer to that is yes, then you serve mammon. Am I willing to sin to keep what I have? Again, if the answer is yes, then you serve mammon. Do I put God on the shelf so that I can cling to my stuff? What am I unwilling to give up to enjoy a closer walk with God? Is my Netflix account my garage, my books, my classes, 
my education, my promotions, are all those really truly what I'm going after? So much so that I will deny the normal basic rhythms of life that God has given me to enjoy a walk with Him. Bible time can wait. Prayer time can wait. Church can wait because I'm working really hard and I'm tired and therefore I can't get up and come to the gathering on Sunday or I can't get up early enough to read a little, just a couple of paragraphs of God's Word to me. I can't wake up early enough to spend time talking with God. Does God go on the shelf? Am I unwilling to give up some of these things to enjoy a closer walk with Him? What am I most proud of? What do I put on display the most? My stuff? My title? Do I show off my cars before I show off my faith? Do I want people to walk in and just be impacted at the, um, the size of my house more than I want them to be impacted by how good God has been? When people start talking about Jesus coming back, do I, mean, do I mourn all the things I think I'll miss? Man, I used to do this. People talk about Jesus coming back, so I'm like, not yet. I don't have enough stuff yet. Not yet. I've not done enough stuff yet. Not yet. I don't have a few more titles. Someone asked me last night why I, don't, I choose not to be called Dr. Jackson in church. Part of it is, is because that plays to my love of mammon. I love the title. I love the title. I love the respect. I love the the gravitas of being Dr. Jackson. And sometimes it is completely humbling just to be normal Justin. Because at the end of the day, I don't serve a degree. I don't serve a title. I don't serve for your respect or your gravitas. I serve for the praise of God, and one day all the diplomas on my wall will burn up. And in heaven it won't be recorded how many hours of class time I had, how many papers I published. My friends, we have to do these kind of heart-searching questions in our own life. They're painful to ask, they're hard to ask, but they're extremely helpful in getting to the real fiber of what we love and what we're pursuing. We work for the things we treasure. And remember, what one treasures reveals what one loves. And so whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that you're serving, if you go through this list of questions and you say, yep, that's, that's me, it's clear that it's not just that you have a time problem or a time management problem. It's not just that you can't get up early enough to be with God. It's that you have a love problem. That's ultimately what's at, the, at stake of it. When, I'm, when I have a pressing deadline for class, and I realize I have to give up the next several days of devotion to get this paper in, what's at stake is not that I've poorly managed my time. What's at stake is I poorly manage what's important and what my love is. God doesn't go on the shelf. He's not a second. He's what's solid. He's what goes first and above all else. So, my friends, to be a healthy, flourishing kingdom citizen is to be someone who loves God and serves Him with a singular devotion. Everything else is sidelined. Everything else is on the back burner. Everything else can go on the shelf, but God cannot. 
Now, the third test has to do with anxiety. I think too often, and I've, and I've listened to a lot of sermons this week on this text, too often we break here. This is where we'd stop anxiety is a sermon for itself, and it treats it as if anxiety is one category, and all of our view of treasures and stuff in, in heaven and stuff in the world, all that's a separate discussion, but I think these two things go together. I think that they belong in one and the same unit. In fact, it could be, it could be argued that one of the clearest indicators, one of the most authoritative tests of whether or not you're treasuring treasures in the world or whether or not you're treasuring treasures in heaven is to simply ask this question, am I anxious? Am I anxious? Jesus intends for it to all to go together. He says, therefore, which means that he's building on what he's already said. He's building on this treasure talk. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Now, the word anxious is used no less than six times in this little patch of, of verses. And if you, listen, if you read it right, if you read it in the right tone, Jesus is speaking as if anxiety is absolutely foolish. Why are you anxious? That's kind of the question. That's, it's kind of a shameful thing. Why are you anxious? It's, it's foolishly unnecessary to be anxious. Why? First off, anxiety causes us to forget that God is not just some divine God that puts us on a stipend and might give us what we need. No, God is a good father. We're not just servants on his payroll waiting for paychecks to come in. God is a good father who provides and loves and cares for his people and anxiety causes us to forget that i'm a father i'm father of three soon to be four i don't want my children coming to the dinner table hoarding away leftover food because they're anxious about eating tomorrow I don't want my kids to steal your, your kids' jackets because they're afraid how they're going to stay warm in the wintertime. I don't want to hear my children saying that they're losing sleep 
Because they're just not sure how life is going to happen in our household. No, I want them to sleep, close your eyes. I want you to eat and enjoy. Put on the warm jacket, let daddy zip it up for you, and know that your daddy loves you. I got it. Trust me. I know what they need. And as a father, I'm fully intent and devoted to giving them exactly what they need. And not just exactly what they need, more than they need. To lavish love on them. Not just to give them food, but to give them Mickey Mouse shaped pancakes. (laughs) Not just to give them something to drink, but to give them strawberry milk. Man, I wish I was my own daddy. I would (laughs) have... I've eaten a lot more Mickey Mouse-shaped pancakes in my life. (laughs) Just imagine how foolish it would be for my six-year-old to have anxiety problems about the mortgage or the grocery bill. I know that there's plenty of money to cover the house, to cover his needs and his siblings' needs. And as his father, I'm going to make sure those needs are met. But, But even with that being true, just suppose that's true. I've never given him an instance... To, to think that I am negligent, that I'm going to pull back what he needs. Let's just suppose that he was insecure in my provision, insecure that I would give him what he needed. And so rather than enjoying his meals that his mother and I, well, his mother, and then I put on the table, his mother cooks, I put it on the table. That's the, just to be clear, yeah, who gets the credit for that. Instead of enjoying the meals that his mother cooks and I put on the table, and that we intend for him to savor And to be satisfied. Imagine we begin watching him just eat a little bit. He's eating really quick because he's afraid of losing it. And then he takes all the leftovers, which there are plenty of, and he begins shoving them in his pockets. That'd be illogical, right? Well, he comes back the next day. And oh my goodness, he doesn't need all those leftovers in his pockets. Because there's another warm, delicious meal on the table. And this time there's cake. And he eats, and he's full, and he's satisfied, and there's loads of leftovers. And yet again, he just eats fast, and he starts shoving the food in his pockets. The next day, it happens again, and it happens again. At some point, what I would want my children to understand is that I as their father will provide. They can stop fearfully, anxiously anxiously stuffing food down their pockets. Tice is the worst about this. He'll take his Cheerios and put them in his pillow at times. And then during nap time, you'll hear this. (laughs) It's like, come on, man, we're not squirrels. You're my son. I'll give you Cheerios when you get up. Just trust me, we've got it. Never yet have we missed a meal. Never yet has the dinner table been empty. Never yet has my provision filled my kids. They can trust me. And if that's true of me as a merely human father, who's selfish, sinfully flawed, and not infinitely powerful, how much truer is it of our perfect father? I don't give my children rocks when they ask for food. God doesn't give his children rocks. He provides. 
Jesus uses the birds and the grass as an illustration of the Father's care. And he works from a lesser to greater principle. Uh, he, he argues that if the Father feeds his pets, if he feeds his, and clothes his plants, will he not take care of his children? Right? Can you imagine how terrible it would be for me as a, as a father to feed my dog panda, to water all my plants and to keep them in the sunlight so they have what they need to grow, and yet my children are starving? God doesn't do that. He feeds his pets, he clothes his plants, and he takes care of his children who are way more valuable than the pets and plants. He loves us dearly and never once will he let us down in his provision. He will give us what we need. We are more valuable than the birds and than grass. If he cares for them, he cares for us much, much more. Now the second reason Jesus speaks of anxiety as foolishness, is that anxiety accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes nothing. Jesus says this, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a rhetorical question as to how foolish and absurd anxiety is. My friends, you were not sovereign to begin with, and your anxiety and anxiously trying to think through how to sovereignly work out this plan will not make you any more sovereign than you were to begin with. Anxiety doesn't give you any extra power. If, any, if anything, it blinds you from the one who actually is sovereign, from the one who actually has power. Anxiety is like taking a drowning person and tying an anchor on their feet. It does nothing to help them. It's absolutely pointless. In the end, my friends, anxiety reveals that we are chasing worldly treasures. In Jesus' words, the Gentiles seek these things. They seek food and they seek clothes. And they get them. But we're children of God. He knows that we need, need these things. And since we have a personal relationship with God, our Father, who provides, we can seek other things. My children, because they know I'm going to provide, can play and learn how to read and learn how to do house chores and do all these other things and expand in other parts of life because they don't need to worry about what they're going to eat right now. In the same way, because we don't have to seek these things, we can seek God. And as healthy, flourishing kingdom citizens, we are those who trust God our Father and who seek His kingdom and His righteousness and trust Him with providing the food and the clothes and everything else that we need. Now again, you might say, I don't, again, you're preaching to the choir, Pastor, I don't struggle with anxiety. Um, I said that once uh, to a doctor when I had heart palpitations in the ER, and he just laughed and he said, yeah, I hear that a lot. My friends, we all have anxiety problems. We all have had moments that have just been too much for us. We all have had these moments that we're faced with fear, faced with what's going to come. And at those moments, it's not just a battle over fear. It's a battle of trust. It's a battle of love. It's a battle of reminding ourselves what is the true treasure. What is, what is it that we should be actually pursuing? So if you don't know if you struggle with anxiety, here's just a couple of questions to ask. Do I sleep in peace? knowing that God's kingdom is prevailing? Or do I stay awake at night worried about what might happen to me tomorrow or the next day? Do you sleep in peace? 
Do I rest in the unfailing provision of my God, or is my mind constantly thinking about what I might lose? You find yourself fantasizing about being kicked out, evicted, uh, being, becoming homeless and destitute. You, you can constantly fantasize. What do my kids grow up not having all the stuff that other kids have? In my heart of hearts, how do I define security? What do I feel like I need to be secure? Where do I think I can find security? How you define secure reveals what you're actually anxious about because you take out one of those elements of your definition of security and I promise you, you're going to feel the shakenness of anxiety. If someone says, well, I have to have a good job with at least 100K a year to feel secure. Well, the moment layoffs happen, the 100K stops, they have to work at Home Depot and they get 30K instead, you can bet there's going to be a ton of anxiety creeping in. So whatever it is that you define as security, that's going to reveal whether or not you're actually anxious or not. Here's a, here's a good, thoughtful question. You might be in good times, but think back on bad times. Think back on tough times. How do I respond when tough times roll in? Does my dependency on God increase, or do I spend more time in, do I spend more time in prayer, more time in the Word, more time in seeking rest in His presence? Or do I overbook myself with overtime at work, skipping out on my personal time with the Lord, missing my workouts, my, my, my jogging times? My friends, um, I, can, I can tell you just as a point of transparency, you can know it's been a rough week at church and an anxious week at church when, you, when I haven't run that week, when I haven't gone to the gym that week. There's so much to do, so much to care for. Somebody's leaving the church the, the ties must have dropped, or, or they're going to fire me. They're going to get rid of me. i I got to work harder, right? Don't we all do that at different times in these moments of anxiety where we begin taking off the things that actually do us good? Family time plummets, right, during these times of anxiety. Instead of being at home with our kids and our wife that reminds us what true happiness looks like, we end up going to work earlier and staying later and becoming more tired and more anxious in this deadly cycle of anxiety. And what the problem is with all of that is it reveals that we have not treasured God like we thought that we have. And the, and the thing to do is not just to stop and reevaluate time management. How can I manage my time better? I mean, I, I hear that prayer request, more balance of time, more time management. No, the time is to stop, repent, and do a clear search as to what your real treasure is. And then get into time management. And then get into questions about how to balance your time better. But first start with what is it right now at this moment, at your moment of anxiety, at the moment of your imbalance, at the moment of your weariness, your burnout, your tiredness, your fears of layoffs, your going into, the work, into work at 6.30 and coming home at 8 after the kids are in bed. Those moments are the times that you should stop everything and just ask, what is it that I am chasing? What is it that I am chasing? I remember early in my ministry, I chased the wrong things. I chased a lot of things in ministry that could be declared ministry idols. I just remember sitting there watching my boy learning how to stand up. 
And just sit there and cried and realized that in going to work early and coming home late and in going to all these meetings and coming home and working on this paper and coming home and working on that sermon and then going out to the hospital to go see this person, but never taking time just to stand there and watch the beauty and the treasure of my little boy standing up. Just moments right there that I realized I'd been cherishing the wrong things. Your company will drop you like a hot potato the moment they feel like you're not valuable enough. Your bank account will get empty the moment the government decides to tax the heck out of you because they need more money. Your employers are happy to be rid of you the moment you become an inconvenience. Your God and your church family are not like that. Why are we chasing after things that don't love us the way that God can? Materialism is a brutal master. It perverts the way things really are, causing us to think about things around us as more valuable, more irreplaceable than they really are. It keeps us in its chains It it, it wants us to serve to get it, serve to keep it. And then in the end, after decades of serving it, it leaves us anyway. After working so hard and promising that if we work hard, we'll get it, we'll be able to keep it, we'll be able to maintain it, and then all of a sudden it's gone anyway. It's given us its money, but it's stolen our life. It's stolen our time. It's stolen our joy. It's stolen and chipped away the affections of our heart. It's stolen our devotion to God. Materialism loves keeping you in fear. Because the more anxious you are, the more thoughts of destitution, of hopelessness, of having less, the more it chips away at you with its fear, the more anxious you become and the harder you must work. It'll look you boldface in the eye and exaggerate the security that it offers. Saying, look to me, trust in me, look at the things I give. Trust me, I give life. All the while it's covering up its scars of rust and moth bites. What a weak God materialism is. What a weak and unimpressive and unbeautiful God, cars and houses and bank accounts and clothing and promotions and titles and diplomas. And all these things are because guess what? Those things cannot save themselves. How could they ever save you? Martin Luther once lamented, what sort of God is not even capable of defending himself against moth and rust? And yet that's the God we give ourselves to over and over and over. So my friends, do not treasure a God that does not treasure you. Do not cherish a God that cannot cherish you. Do not protect a God who doesn't protect you. Do not cling to a God who doesn't first cling to you. And that's where Jesus comes in and he says, I'm much better than materialism. I'm the God you're looking for. He presses us to seek him. It's no coincidence at all that I think that we hear the same language of seeking things above and pursuing the right treasure. When Paul says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above. Does that not sound like Jesus' words? Seek the things that are above. And then what does he say? Where Christ is. What's the true treasure? Jesus. The section began by saying this. That we should lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And then Jesus ends it by saying that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in reality, it's one and the same appeal. The same plea. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is, okay, what I want everybody to do is start your morning off with a little Bible study and then continue about your materialistic day. Seek first the kingdom of God and then go add all these things to yourself. That's not what he's saying. The word first, first has this idea of a goal, this telos that we're trying to work for, these priorities that we're aiming for. It is above all else. First, above all else, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And my friends, this is an ongoing pursuit that we take up every single day. It takes us to reassess constantly what we are chasing. And with every morning we wake up, we have to reassess and reevaluate what it is that we are treasuring. How do you pursue Christ in, your king, in his kingdom? Well, it takes loving the world less and loving Jesus more. He's the true treasure of heaven. He's the king who has brought the kingdom. He is Jehovah to scan you, God, my righteousness, who died for me, who was buried for me, and who rose again, and then declared me righteous before God. It was his blood that is more precious than gold and silver, than all the gold that I could ever store up. His blood, more precious than all of that, has bought me an eternity that my gold and silver could never buy. When it comes to battling materialism, we have to press our minds to think about him who is more worthy. The Prince of Peace stepped into flesh for us. He made himself so that he had, he who made the earth had no place to lay his head down. He who knows we need food was hungry. He who knows that you need clothing to keep you warm was stripped beaten, and then clothed you with himself. He who gives us life gave up his, and then he accomplished a resurrection so that we could have God's riches of his grace for eternity forever and ever and ever. My friends, be healthy, flourishing Christians in this kingdom and treasure the right treasures. Let's pray. Father God, at this moment, we just thank you for giving us the jewel of heaven, the treasure of all, Jesus Christ himself, the king who is the eternal king, the king who will never let us down, the king that will never die, the king that moth and rust and thieves cannot take away. Let us pursue the gold of the kingdom through our faith in Jesus alone. Thank you for lavishing upon us your great riches. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.